Okay, so chapter 30 is um, musculoskeletal trauma. So an introduction. Injuries to the muscles, bone, bones, and joints are a pretty common type of injury that will come across. Such injuries vary in severity from minor, and in some situations, musculoskeletal injuries can actually be life-threatening well, as well. Vast majority of the time, musculoskeletal injuries are not going to be life-threatening. Proper emergency care can prevent ad additional damage. That's one of the reasons why we do things like splint fractures or dislocations is to prevent and protect it from causing further damage. So a system review, functions of the musculoskeletal system include, they give its body its shape, also play a role in protecting the internal organs, things like your thoracic cavity especially. Uh, protects those very vital uh, organs. With joints, they provide for movement. Bones help store salts, other materials, and the bones also help and aid in the production of red blood cells as well. So when we're dealing with muscles, remember there are three types of different muscles that are found in the body. We have voluntary muscles, also known as skeletal muscles. These are going to be the ones that make up or comprise of your major muscle masses of the body, allow for movement. And again, the voluntary muscles, these are the ones that you have to consciously think about in order for them to work. We also have involuntary or smooth muscles. We find these in the internal organs, the blood vessels, the bronchioles, et cetera. And they're involuntary, meaning they don't require conscious thought in order to work. And then we have our cardiac muscles. These are, are only found in the walls of the heart. Remember what makes these cardiac muscles extremely unique is that they have their own electrical system and don't require stimulus from the brain in order to con contract. Tendons and ligaments. <clears throat> Remember, tendons connect muscle to bone, and it is ligaments that connect bone to bone. We also have cartilage, is an extension of the bone end, is composed of connective tissue. One function of cartilage, it allows bones to ride over each other during movement with relatively little so here we have those ligaments. Remember, ligaments connect bone to bone. So we have ligaments here, here, and also right here, holding that kneecap in place as well. And then we have the tendons that connect muscle to bone, and that's shown right here. We have joint cavity. We have that cartilage that we were talking about that's on top on the bones. Anywhere those large joints are, there should be cartilage. And again, that's just kind of protection to keep those bone ends from grinding on each other. Skeletal system. Skeleton supports the body. Again, allows for movement, protection of vital organs. And where two bone ends come together, we have joints. 
and some of those joints or the, it's because of those joints that we do have motion in the body as well. Remember, joints allow for six different types of emotion. We have flexion, bringing towards the, the body. Extension is the opposite, away from the body. Adduction is towards the midline. The opposite is abduction, away from the midline. Rotation is movement turns the body along the axis. And circumduction is movement through an arc of a circle, such as in the wrist. The skeletal system is broken down structurally into two different sections. We, we have the axial skeleton. It's composed of the head, thorax, and vertebral column. And then everything outside of the axial skeleton is the appendicular skeleton. And that comprises the bones of the extremities, including the shoulder girdles and the pelvis as well. Again, it is important that we know the major bones of the body. So we have the skull. We have the clavicles, the sternum, ribs, humerus, radius, ulna, your pelvis, femur tibia, fibula, and then we get the bones in the hands and the feet. So again, the bones of the upper extremities, scapula is your shoulder blade, humerus is the larger bone of the upper arm, radius is on the thumb side, ulna is on the pinky side. Then we move into the bones of the hand, the carpals that are in the hand. So we have the carpals, metacarpals, and then your fingers are the phalanges. Lower extremities, again, we have our pelvis, different bones that comprise of our pelvis. Then we have the femur, which is the largest, strongest bone in the body. Then we have our patella, which is the kneecap. Then we have the tibia, which is the shin bone. The fibula is the smaller bone behind it. And then the bones of the feet, which are the tarsals, uh, metatarsals, and then the phalanges. So different types of injuries that we can see to bones and joints. One that we all are aware of is going to be fractures or breaks. A fracture is a break in the continuity of a bone. And fractures are either classified as either open, an open fracture, meaning the bone ends have gone through the skin. So we have an open wound as well. Open fractures are also referred to as compound fractures. And they, again, with it has an associated open wound with that through the soft tissue as well. Then we have closed fractures where no open wound is associated with the fractures. The bone ends did not penetrate or go through the skin. <clears throat> So when we have that fracture, those bone ends may stay together depending on how severe, what type of fracture we're dealing with, or they, again, they may come uh, displaced. If they become displaced, not only do we have to worry about the injury to the bone, but we also have to worry about injury to the soft tissue, those other uh, structures that are surrounding the bones as well. And osteoporosis um, is a degenerative bone disease. 
due to loss of minerals, especially calcium, calcium and osteoporosis are going to make those bones much more brittle and it's easier for patients with osteoporosis to suffer a fracture. So again, just the difference between an open compound and a closed fracture. So with that closed fracture, again, there's no associated break in the skin. The bone ends have remained in the body at the entire time. Compound fracture, now we do have a break in that skin where those bone ends have become a little bit displaced and have penetrated or poked through that skin. So here's an example of a closed fracture. Again, there's no open associated wound with this. So we can obviously see deformity. Pretty obvious that that's not where it's supposed to be. So we can assume a fracture dislocation as well, probably. This next picture is the exact same type of fracture, but this one is a compound fracture. It did penetrate. It did break through that skin. And I've seen that exact same type of injury a couple of times on patients. One of the patients actually ended up losing their foot over the, the ordeal. So if we have a compound fracture such as this, again, not only do we have to worry about splinting that injury, but now we also have an open wound, soft tissue injuries as well. So we have to bandage the area, cover it, prevent from contamination and so forth as well. So there are different types of fractures that a patient may suffer. So one type of fracture is known as a green stick fracture. The green stick fracture passes only partway through the bone. And it's we only see green stick fractures in kids. And the reason being is kids' bones are much softer and bendable than adults' bones are. So if we bent a kid's leg or, or a bone, we start bending it, we're going to start seeing it kind of splintering off up here at the top end in the opposite direction of kind of where we're bending it. We compare that, that's what would cause a green stick fracture. We compare that to an adult, and we did that, it would just snap their bone completely in half. So again, it's the reason why kiddos get green stick fractures is because their bones are more pliable, they bend easier as well. So green stick fractures we only see in kiddos. We can have a communed fracture which is more than two fragments. So we don't have just one end of the bone hit end right here, another end of the bone right here. There's something that happened that causes there's at least three different pieces of bones. Pathologic fractures, these are just due to age. The bones are weak, brittle, may have osteoporosis. Osteoporosis are more prone to pathologic fractures, but there's no real trauma that was associated with it. It may be a broken vertebrae, fractured vertebrae, because she's using her vertebrae daily or he walking around and so forth and it just breaks. An epiphyseal fracture happens in the epiphyseal plate or the growth plate of the, the bone that's injured. That can cause, especially in kiddos, that can cause uh, an abnormal growth. They, wherever that fracture was, it may prevent that extremity from growing normally. Oblique fractures are broken at an angle across the shaft. It's not going to be parallel, 100% parallel with the bone, but it's going to be kind of more at an angle. And there's pictures of these as well. 
Transverse fractures, those are across the shaft. So that would be this, for example, here's your bone, here's the fracture. This would be a transverse fracture. Spiral fractures is caused by twisting of the extremity or the bone and it, it, the fracture kind of wraps around the bone. Spiral fractures are very common in sports injuries. Incomplete fracture does not run completely through the bone. Impacted fractures usually occurs in falls or jumps where the bones or the weight of the body comes down on that bone causes fractures. And we can have hairline fractures, which is a small crack that does not create instability. It's just a crack, not necessarily a clean break. Uh, again, there's still everything is referred to as fractures, whether it is completely shattered, it's a fracture, or it just has a small crack in it. We still consider it a fracture. <clears throat> so, just some pictures of those types of fractures. So, again, we have a commuted fracture, which there's more than two uh, segments. So, something happened, we have bone in here, bone here, and that third section is going to be right here. Impacted again, the weight of the body, they jump, they fall, the weight of the body hits on it, and it just gives a bone. Green stick is right there. Again, we only see green stick in kiddos. Oblique, it's not at a 90-degree angle. Compare that to transverse, which is at a 90-degree angle or basically almost. And a spiral fracture from twisting or rotating the extreme. Picture of a green stick fracture. Again, you can kind of see that fracture right here. And again, that just is bending and it's just kind of giving away at the ends. The signs and symptoms of a fracture, things that we need to be on the lookout for that may indicate, hey, this may be fractured. Pain or tenderness to that area. Fractures are, tend to be extremely painful for our patients. We patient may see, we may see obvious deformity like that ankle fracture that we saw earlier. Didn't, bones weren't sticking through it, but we could obviously tell by looking at it, hey, that's not right. There's probably a fracture there. Discolorization of the area. Paresthesia, which is a tingling sensation. Anesthesia, loss of feeling to that area or to the extremity beyond that distal to that area. Paresis, weakness or paralysis, inability to move the extremity. And in certain situations and where it becomes really worrisome for us or the patient as well, is if that fracture is causing a decrease in pulses or perfusion beyond that fractured side. So if we have a person that fractures their humerus and now this entire arm is not getting good circulation, that's going to be very worrisome for us. It's increasing the likelihood that the patient may have to may lose uh, function in that arm. So in this case, this is obviously some type of fracture. The kiddo has obvious gross deformity to that to his forearm. That's about all that can cause that much deformity. It's going to be a fracture. So some complications that can arise from fractures. A big one's going to be 
hemorrhage. And in certain situations, that's the main thing that we're worried about. Things like femur fractures or pelvic fractures, we are really worried about significant bleeding. But even minor fractures, they break the radius ulna, and now it uh, moves away, uh, the bone ends move around and they rupture the radial artery. Or even the soft tissue is going to cause some bleeding. The bone itself is very vascular, so the bone is going to bleed as well. Tissue damage, including nerves, blood vessels, especially when we're dealing with open compound fractures. We also worry about infections and interruptions to the blood of the blood supply beyond that fractured site. It pinches off an artery or it totally ruptures an artery. And again, now that extremity is not receiving good circulation. Other types of injuries that we may come across. We can see, uh, come across a strain. Strain is an injury to a muscle or a muscle, to a muscle or a muscle, okay? And caused by overextension and overstretching. So a strain is just to a muscle, it tends to be from like overstretching it or using it to uh, overextending it. So strains are muscle injuries. When we have a strain that causes muscle fibers to actually tear, pain is usually localized with no edema or discolorization since there is no major bleeding occurring. So it's just going to be a complaint of pain. We're not typically don't see any swelling, may have some tenderness to the area, but we're not going to see anything obvious when we look at the site. And since that muscle is damaged, it is going to have some pain and weakness with use of that muscle as well. The vast majority of the time, we're not going to get dispatched to a muscle strain. Sprains, on the other hand, a sprain is an injury to a joint capsule. Uh, it, and a strain will damage the connective tissue, usually ligaments uh, in that joint. Where we tend to see strains are the shoulders, knees, wrists, ankles are probably the most common sprains that we see. And with sprains, injury causes immediate pain and tenderness and will have delayed swelling and discolorization later on. That's going to take some time before we start seeing the swelling and discolorization though. Now we're moving up, getting into some of more of more of the serious injuries. We can have a dislocation. Dislocation is a displacement of the bones in a joint. The joint can be found in a abnormal position with obvious deformity and usually swelling starting to occur as well. And these discolor, uh, dislocations can be very grotesque looking. They can look pretty bad. However, they are very seldomly life-threatening unless serious hemorrhage is occurring with it. And more so than worried about this injury killing the patient, we worry about dislocation if there is good peripheral perfusion and circulation beyond that injured site, ensuring that that extremity past the injury is still getting good circulation to it. 
and they may damage blood vessels and nerves during this dislocation as well. Bone ends can pin or pinch those blood vessels or nerves up against the wall of the leg, constricting them, causing paralysis in that extremity, causing a reduction in circulation. It's likely to result in ligament or joint capsule damage as well. Remember, it's those ligaments that are holding those bones together, holding that joint in place. So if it becomes dislo dislocated, then those ligaments are likely getting very stretched out pretty bad and it can tear them or cause damage to them. So here's an example of a dislocation to a knee joint. You can see a pretty grotesque looking, obvious deformity to it. And on here we have a x-ray of that injury. And you can see bone, the joint capsule is not as it should be. The bone ends are separated in this case. The elbow joint dislocation. Again, you can see the x-ray right here and you can see that obvious deformity right there in his arm. Dislocations can be associated or oftentimes are found with associated fractures as well. So they can have a combination of both. They broke that area, they broke that uh, bones in their ankle and that also causes it to become more unstable, causing a dislocation as well. Knee, shoulders, elbow, foot, ankle, digits, hip, wrist dislocations are most common, but a dislocation can occur in any joint. And again, the primary concern when we're dealing with the vast majority of dislocations is a loss of distal circulation due to pinched arteries. That bone in right here, say there's an artery that ran right along there, now that bone in is putting pressure and pinching that artery. Now the rest of this arm is no longer getting cir circulation. Again, that is going to be the biggest concern when we're dealing with dislocations. So general care considerations. All musculoskeletal injuries can present with similar signs and symptoms. It may be very difficult for us to distinguish, well, is this a dislocation? Or is this just a sprain? Or is it fractured? Or, or so forth. The force that causes that musculoskeletal injury also causes other injuries as well. And again, just like we said, most dislocations are not going to be life-threatening. Most fractures are not going to be life-threatening. So don't get tunnel vision and focus solely in on that grotesque-looking knee injury that we fail to perform a good, adequate head-to-toe exam and miss something that will kill the patient. Always assess the mechanism of injury, signs and symptoms, major traumas. Again, make sure that we are doing a complete rapid secondary assessment, a complete head to toe. So again, we need to evaluate that mechanism of injury. What caused the fracture dislocation musculoskeletal injury to the patient? So some different types of mechanism of injuries. It may be a direct force. The injury occurs at the point of impact. So an example of this, a hammer blow to the arm fractures the radius. That would be an example of a direct force type of mechanism of injury. Indirect force, injury impacts one end of, of a limb causing some distance damage or dam some injury some distance away. 
So an example of this is a man jumps off a ladder, landing on his feet and causing a dislocated knee. So the knee never made contact with anything, but as they landed, that energy got transferred up their leg and the knee was the weakest point it found first. And that's where the injury occurred at. Twisting force, again, very common causes those spiral fractures. We talked about other types of musculoskeletal injuries as well. Part of the extremity remains stationary while the rest gets twisted. Football injury when the foot is planted and they tackle them and twist them or spin them when they bring them to the ground. So again, as we talked about, most fractures are not going to be considered a life-threatening injury unless they're associated with major external bleeding. Now, there is two big uh, exceptions to that rule, and those are femur fractures and pelvis fractures. A femur fracture and or a pelvic fracture are considering life-threatening injuries. And if you'll remember back to talking about patient assessment, we treat life-threatening injuries on scene when we find them. So most fractures are not going to be treated on scene. They'll be done in route to the hospital for major trauma, unless it's a femur or pelvic fracture. Those do need to be treated on scene prior to loading and moving the patient. Potential for significant bleeding that can be life-threatening. Again, that is going to be the big concern with pelvic or femur fractures is major internal bleeding. Again, the bones themselves are vascular. The bones will bleed. A patient can easily lose approximately 1,500 milliliters of blood around each femur. So not only do the bones bleed, but there's major arteries that run real close to the femur as well. Large amount of blood that can be lost via the unstable and expanded pelvic compartment can easily lead to death as well. Again, there's major arteries that run through your pelvic uh, compartment as well. Now, if we fracture that pelvis, that pelvis is now unstable and will actually expand as well. That's gonna allow more blood to accumulate in that pelvic compartment as well. So again, with femur fractures, pelvic fractures, those are considered life-threatening injuries, meaning that we treat them on scene before loading and moving and transporting the patient. Again, a patient can lose their entire blood supply into the pelvis. So the bones are highly vascular, can bleed profusely if injured. The bones of both uh, femur and the pelvis contains large blood, uh, blood vessels, blood supply with a tendency to bleed heavily when fractured. So again, the femurs themselves will actually bleed. And then we also have to worry about the soft tissues, and the arteries and large veins that run real close to that femur as well. So if we have a suspected uh, uh, pelvic fracture, if we, just based on looking at it, there's obvious deformity to it or the patient's conscious and they're saying their pelvis hurts really bad, we do not want to palpate the pelvis if it is obviously or if we truly suspect a fracture is present. If we have no reason to suspect that initially, patient's completely unconscious, we don't see anything obvious, we're doing our rapid secondary assessment or head to toe, we go ahead and palpate that pelvis. Now we note that that pelvis does feel unstable, does feel fractured. We're not going to ever repeat uh, 
palpating the pelvis again. And again, these have to be treated on scene prior to moving your patient. They need to be done where the patient is found. So our assessment-based approach for bone and joint injuries, and we'll get into the treatment of these injuries coming up. So we start with our scene size up. Again, safety, our safety is going to be the most important. Consider the mechanism of injury. Again, we need to evaluate, we need to look at that mechanism of injury. As soon as we lie on the patients, that's when we begin our primary assessment, general oppression will aid in determining the severity, priority of the patient. And we still go through our ABCs, just like we would with any other patient, our primary assessment. So don't get immediately focused or tunnel visioned on bone or joint injuries and ignore other life-threatening injuries with the ABCs. Again, major trauma, we need to consider the need for spine motion restrictions. Based on how the patient presents, based on that mechanism of injury, if it's a major trauma, we need to assume there is a spinal injury as well. So as soon as we approach, we're going to have one of our partners hold C-spine while we go through our ABCs. Oxygenation is indicated to maintain saturations at or above 95%. Or remember that oxygen is automatically indicated if there are signs of respiratory distress, shock, regardless of these pulse ox readings. If the patient is uh, pulseless, or mobilize the patient, begin rapid transport if there is pulselessness or cyanosis distal to an injured extremity. Again, that's occurring, that's telling us that extremity is not getting good circulation. Patient is likely going to need immediate surgical intervention to restore circulation to that injured site to hopefully preserve that extremity. They don't have to get it amputated. Secondary assessments, inspect and palpate the injured extremity. We're going to check for deformity, contusions, tenderness, swelling, discolorizations. Check the skin, color, temperature, and condition, as well as circulation distal to the injured site. And we call this PMS. We check pulses, cap refill, motor, and sensation distally of that injured site. If it's a major trauma, we're gonna check PMS in all four extremities. But if it's an isolated injury, we're not worried about our 10 minutes on scene, we don't have to do a complete head to toe, then on that injured extremity, we definitely need to check PMS. Pulseless motor sensation. Though a fracture may be suspected in the field by signs, it can only be definitive diagnosed and x-rays taken at the hospital. I don't, that's in books. I've been taught that it's, that's what it's taught. I, if there's a bone in sticking out in the middle of somebody's legs, we know it's fractured. But technically it is have to be confirmed with radiology. Again, secondary assessments, when we get our full set of vital signs, patient's conscious, talking to us, make sure we get a history. And again, do not forget to assess, if, if it's indicated to do so, whether or not the patient has other injuries as well. So signs and symptoms that may indicate 
bone or joint injuries. You can have deformities. You can have weird angulations where the arm is bent or the leg is bent in an unnatural way that we know the only way it will bend that way if the bones broke or dislocated. Protruding bones through the skin, pain, tenderness. During assessment palpation, we may feel crepitus, which is a grating sound or a feeling of broken bone fragments grinding against each other. We feel that area and we can actually feel those bone ends rubbing in on each other. That's known as crepitus. Swelling, weakness, loss of function to that extremity. And oftentimes with dislocations, that joint is going to be locked. It's in that abnormal position and they're not gonna be able to move that joint. We assess for the six P's of a fracture or dislocation. We have pain, pallor, pale skin with delayed capillary refill, paralysis of that extremity, paresthesia, numbness or tingling sensation, pressure, swelling, pulses on that extremity as well. So again, just make sure we're doing a good thorough assessment. So our care for bone or joint injuries. Again, we're gonna use spinal or standard precautions, bare minimum gloves on every single patient contact. Again, based on the mechanism of injury, based on patient presentation, we may need to immediately maintain inline spinal stabilization. Uh, if it's an isolated injury, I stepped off the curb wrong and I think I broke my ankle, but I didn't fall, hit my head, anything like that, then we don't need to worry about spinal precautions. But somebody that was involved in an MVC and is now unresponsive definitely have to worry about spinal precautions. So again, it's going to be very dependent on the situation. If there's any doubt start holding spinal precautions. If we determine that it's not needed, we can always let go of it later on. Administer oxygen if indicated to do so, signs, symptoms of shock, major external bleeding or internal bleeding, respiratory distress. Just go, you're not gonna harm a trauma patient, especially giving them high flow O2. Remember with trauma, we tend to go directly to a non-rebreather. 15 liters per minute, regardless of pulse oxygen. Then we need to, after we ensure there's no other life threats, when the appropriate time, we need to splint the bone and joint injuries. And we'll talk about splinting coming up. And then we apply cold packs. That's going to re help reduce swelling. Elevating the extremity is also going to help with swelling as well. Reassessment, we're going to repeat model signs, five minutes if they're stable, or unstable 15 if they're stable. Make sure that we're reassessing, checking on our interventions, watch mobilization devices, as swelling can cause a reduction of blood flow. So we want to assess, make sure that those splints that we're using are not getting too tight to the point where it is cutting off or reducing circulation beyond the injury. And we re recheck distal pulse motor function and sensation. And that's going to be very important with us when we're talking about bandaging or um, splinting an injury. We always check distal pulse circulation PMS before we splint the injury. And we always double check PMS at the end after we splint the injury. Again, just to make sure that we did not cause 
a reduction in circulation. So splinting, the basics of splinting. A splint is any device used to immobilize a body part. Splints can be either classified as soft or rigid, firm, hard. We tend to use rigid splints more than anything. And these splints can be commercial devices, oftentimes what we use, or improvised from virtually any type of material. We can use whatever we need to in order to splint that injury. We tend, ambulances carry a lot of commercial devices. My favorite type of commercial device to use as a splint is cardboard splints. You can cut them, you can bend them, however you need to. I love cardboard splints. There's two basic reasons why we apply a splint to a patient. A, it's going to prevent movement of those dislocated joints or bone fragments or ends, and it's going to reduce further damage. It's holding that arm in place, those bones in place, preventing that patient from moving it, causing further damage inside the body. Not only that, sorry, but splinting can actually help reduce the pain and chances of complications as well. Complications that can arise from joint or bone injuries, fractures or dislocations mainly. Muscles, nerves, or blood vessel damage. And again, this can be permanent, permanently debilitating to the patient if it's severe enough. Conversion of a closed fracture to an open fracture. It was initially not displaced. Everything was in line. But we didn't splint that extremity, lifted the patient up to throw him on the stretcher, allowed too much movement of that extremity. Now we cause the bone ends to penetrate through the skin. That's going to be hard to explain on your run report or to your FTO. Restriction of blood flow, excessive bleeding. Increased pain. And paralysis of extremities. Uh, of the entire body, depending on where it is, if it is dealing with a spinal injury. Give me one second, I'm sorry. So my son came to work with me yesterday and he lost his little charging cube. I don't even know what they, what you really call those things. So he got in trouble for that. Didn't know if he left it here or not. So he got in a little bit of trouble for that. Now he's texting me this morning saying, hey, I found it. I was like, uh, no, you didn't because it's here. So what happened? I know my son. He stole somebody else's because it was unmarked or they looked the same. And now he's claiming it for his. So he doesn't get in any more trouble, I promise you. He's pretty sneaky. So again, some general rules for splinting. We want to assess distal pulses, motor and sensation before and after immobilizing. And what this is, we'll test this skill as well. It's the skill that you get tested on. That's the first things that we do, other than BSI seems say we have to check distal pulse circulation before we start doing any type of splinting. And the very last part of that skill is checking PMS at the end of it as well. So if it's a long bone injury, we immobilize the injury site and the joints above and below the injured site. These are the rules, and these are what you need to remember. So if I have a fracture, say my forearm is fractured, the rule for splinting a long bone 
is not only do I have to immobilize the bone itself, but I also have to immobilize the joints above it and below it. So forearm fracture, we have to ensure that we are immobilizing the elbow and the wrist as well. And if we have a joint injury, say it's my elbow, we have to immobilize not only the joint that's injured, but the long bones above and below the injured side as well. And those right there are the golden rules of splinting, if you will. Other than that, it does not matter how you do it. There's no right or wrong way to do it. If you're following those rules, it's considered a good splint. Remove or cut clothing from injured site. Remove jewelry as well to prevent, or if swelling does occur, it doesn't cut off circulation or we have to go back and run and cut the jewelry off. If there's any open wounds associated with the injury, we're going to cover those with sterile dressing, bandage before applying the splints. We want to, again, stop bleeding, cover those open wounds, protect from debris contamination before we put on the splint. And if the injured limb is grossly uh, angulated in an unnatural position, we may be able to attempt to realign it if needed. And there are some rules that we follow about aligning an uh, extremity. So again, limb realignment. If we have a fracture, we can attempt to real, if there is severe deformity or distal extremity is cyanotic, lacks pulses, then we can align the injured limb with manual traction before splinting. So if their arm is just really grossly angulated, we have don't have any good distal pulses, we're going to try to straighten that arm out to see if we can restore circulation. So we do that with just manual traction. We're going to pull outward a little bit and then just move it into its natural position. But we only get, tend to only get one attempt at realignment. If we have complications, meeting resistance, tremendous amount of pain where the patient can't handle it, then we that's our one attempt. We can't, we leave it alone and splint it as we found it. So severe pain, we meet resistance, crepitus is increased, stop, splint the injury as we find it in the position found, and rapid transport to the hospital. Again, anytime they have loss of distal circulation to an extremity, that because of a fracture, that is justification, and we need to go lights and sirens to the hospital so they can try to restore circulation as quick as possible. If we're dealing with a dislocation, generally dislocations should be immobilized in the position found due to dangers associated with nerves, major blood vessels that can begin that can be damaged during the realignment. So again, typically for most dislocations, we leave them in the position found. Consult your protocols for any other guidance. Again, if distal pulse is compromised, then we transport rapidly to the hospital. Generally, though, for dislocations, it's kind of the same rule. If we have the loss of distal pulses, beyond that injured site, then we will attempt to realign the joint as well. Do not intentionally replace protruding bones back into the skin. Again, we tend to just leave them in the position found, splint them as we find them. 
when we are using splints, we need to pad each splint to prevent pressure on the extremity. Now, some commercial devices already come pre-padded, so we don't have to worry about padding rigid splints. We apply splint prior to moving the patient unless it's a major trauma, patient's unstable. <clears throat> Give me one second. So if it's a pelvic or femur fracture, again, we immobilize those, we splint those before moving the patient. If it is a other type of injury, we generally we want to splint it before we move the patient as well because it's going to be painful to move the patient. Again, big exception is if the patient is unstable or critical. And if, if it's not a life-threatening injury, we do not treat those on scene for unstable trauma. So again, there may be some fractures that we don't treat on scene. We wait till we get in the back of the truck transporting uh, before we splint it. When in doubt, again, splint. If we don't know 100% sure if this is fractured or dislocated or is it just painful, if there's a doubt or we think there's a possibility it's fractured, just go ahead and splint it. Uh, we're not going to cause any damage by unnecessarily splinting an injury. And if we show or the patients show signs and symptoms of shock, treat for shock if necessary. Something else we need to remember is what's known as the position of function. If we are bandaging the patient's wrist or hand, we want to put that hand in the position of function. We never want to splint that hand completely flat. So the position of function is just going to be curved like this. This is where the fingers are slightly flexed. The easiest way to do this is we get a roll of Curlex and have the patient hold on to that Curlex force. That's going to put that hand in that position of function. So general splinting rules. So again, we assess distal pulse, motor, and sensory function. So this patient has a right lower extremity injury. So we come up. One of us is going through our ABCs, the rest of our secondary assessment, whatever stage they're at. This one's worried about the fracture. We're going to check distal pulse. Patient's conscious. We're going to check uh, sensation, motor function as well. Cut away clothing to expose the injury. Again, if there is an open wound associated with this fracture dislocation, we're going to take steps to cover it. Apply dressing over it, wrap it up. If, again, if it's out of alignment and we need to put it back into its position, then we do so with gentle traction. So we're going to pull just ever so slightly, and then we're going to try to move that injury back into position. Again, follow the rules, major severe deformity of a long bone fracture, absence of distal pulses or cyanosis to that extremity. Now they're getting ready to splint, so they're going to apply padding. Here, it looks like they just got a rolled up sheet that they wrapped around the patient's leg to pad it from the rigid splint. 
Again, the correct size splint will mobilize the injury and the joints above and below the fractured bone. So they're using a cardboard splint. They have that padding there. They've wrapped the cardboard around. This one may came pre-made into a boot uh, fashion. And now they are securing the splint to the patient's leg. Here, they're just using triangular bandages. You could use Curlex if you want to. If you have enough tape and it's strong enough, you could use tape. It does, again, there's no right or wrong way to do it as long as you're meeting the rules. After we're done splinting, then we check distal pulse, capillary refill, motor sensation in that extremity. Again, a lot of, there is commercial devices out there that comes pre-padded. Uh, skip the padding step, but maintain manual traction in any case. So again, these are just basically hard boards that are wrapped in plastic or some type of vinyl, and they have padding on the inside of them as well. So different types of equipment that we can use for splinting. So again, there's no right or wrong way to splint an injury as long as you follow those rules. If it's a fracture, you have to mobilize the fracture and the joints above and below. If it's a joint, you have to mobilize the joint and the bones above and below. So equipment, we have rigid splints. These rigid splints are made out of wood, plastic, cardboard, compressed wooden fibers. Depending on the style that your service uses, they can have Velcro enclosures like here, they're already set up. We just have to Velcro them down tight. Some may also be pliable that can mold to the patient's injury as well. We do have a few different types of splints that we can play with in class. Pressure or air splints. These are soft and pliable. They're just a plastic bag basically uh, with a bladder in it. Uh, before inflation and after we put air into them, they're gonna become very rigid. Plus pressure evenly, but it's very easy to over pressurize these. Uh, put too much air into them and it can impair circulation. And sometimes, even assessing distal PMS can be pretty hard as well. These are totally wrapping around that patient's foot and leg. There's no way to check distal pulse capillary refill once this gets put on the patient and blown up. And since it is held on by pressure or is, applied, is the splint applying a splint by air pressure, they are affected by air temperature and altitude changes as well. For us, not that big of a deal. If we put a patient in a helicopter, that flight crew, probably not, but may have to worry about the pressure holding in those air splints. <clears throat> Traction splints. Traction splints provide a counter pull, alleviating pain, reducing blood loss, and minimizing further injury. And this next line is very important. Traction splints in the pre-hospital setting, we only use traction splints for mid-shaft femur fractures. 
That's the only thing we're going to use a traction splint on. Formable splints, these are a type of rigid splint that is malleable to conform to a deformed or angulated extremity. It can be made of wire, thin aluminum, or other bendable materials. And SAM splints, ladder splints are examples. SAM splints right here, it's externally has some padding to it, uh, but it, it, it can bend around the patient's arm, it can mold around that angulation, and then all we have to do is wrap it up or tie it up to the arm. This is a ladder splint, and again, we can bend this in pretty much any direction that we want to. Vacuum splints. These are soft, pliable splints that easily form uh, to deformed extremities. And they're basically the kind of the opposite of an air splint. So pumping air into a vacuum splint, air is sucked out of a vacuum splint and they become rigid once all the air is removed. And vacuum splints are considered a type of formable splint. Other types of splinting equipment that we use, sling and swath. So a sling is a triangular, is made out of a triangular bandage. And all we're doing is making a sling for this patient's arm to hold it up. A swath is also made out of a triangular bandage. It is uh, holds the patient's arm against the side of the chest. So here we have a sling right here these parts right here are swaths. So what the sling does, it's holding this arm up to the body. That swath, but I can still do this, and your patient's still gonna be able to do this. So if I'm trying to splint that elbow, we don't want it to be able to move like this. So putting a swath on that is pinning this arm to my chest, and it's preventing the patient from moving that shoulder. And again, swaths are normally just folded triangular bandages. And we tend to use sling and swaths for the vast majority of upper extremity injuries. And it doesn't matter if it's a fracture or dislocation. If I have a fractured wrist, I'm going to put a padded board splint or some type of splint over my, my arm. Then I'm going to sling and swath it. If I have a dislocated elbow, sling and swath, dislocated shoulders, sling and swath. This picture illustrates a fractured humerus or suspected fractured humerus. So they have the, the splint to the humerus, strapped down. That's not the way I would do it, but that's the way they did it. And then they slinged and swathed it as well. So you just get in that habit and that line of thinking. If we have an upper extremity injury, at some point, it's probably going to get sling and swathed as well. Spine boards, full body vacuum mattresses. These are full body splints. They're again, they're were designed to immobilize or to splint the spine. They're used for spinal immobilization if your service still does spinal immobilization. They can provide some stabilization of extremity fractures or dislocations in situations where rapid transports takes priority over splinting extremity injuries as well. Again, most services 
do not use backboards as a transport or mobilization device any longer. Example of a vacuum mattress. You can also have improvised splints. You make that splint out of anything that we have available to us. Only limited by your imagination. It can be rolled up magazines, cardboard boxes that we find, lumber, ironing boards, whatever the case may be. Just keep in mind that the splint must be able to accomplish the task without injury and meet all those principles uh, of splinting. So again, it has to, for fractures, has to stabilize the fracture and the joints above and below. For dislocations, it has to stabilize the dislocation and the bones above and below. So if your service does use vacuum splints, we are manually going to hold stabilization, check PMS, and apply the vacuum splint, secure it to the extremity, attach the pump, suck all the air out. Once all the air is out, it will become rigid. And again, that last step is going to be to check PMS once again. Here's an example of how you can immobilize or, or splint an ankle injury or foot injury. They just have a blanket that's wrapped up and tied to the patient's leg. Pillows work pretty well for foot injuries as well as wrap the foot up, tie it down. Hazards of improper splinting. This is why we have to be careful when we're splinting and we have to reassess after we have that splint on. We can cause compression of nerves, tissues, blood vessels. We can reduce circulation. We can also cause a delay in transport. And again, if it's major trauma, we're not, for the vast majority of injuries anyway, we're not going to take the time to splint those on scene. We're going to load and go. After we do a, our rapid secondary assessment, we've taken care of all life threats. During transport, now we can come back and splint that tip, tip, fracture, whatever the case may be. Again, we can cause a reduction in distal circulation by putting on the splints improperly or too tightly. Again, by putting a splint on wrong, we can cause aggravation of the bones or joints injury. Excessive movement, causing injury to the tissue, nerves, and blood vessels. And if we don't use padding properly, we can cause skin damage as well, if that splint is especially going to be on there for long periods of time. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, let's be back at 940. So splinting long bone injuries. Steps that we need to follow. We need to test. Again, first thing we're going to do is after we make sure we have our PPE on, scene safe, we're going to test the pulse, motor, and sensory function. So if that's a fractured left arm, we're going to check distal pulse on that left arm, radial pulse, cap refill, sensation. Can you feel me touching you? Can you wiggle your fingers? If it's in the foot, we'll check pedal pulses, distal pulse, again, sensation. Can you feel me touching you? Can you wiggle your toes? Again, if it's necessary, we need to go ahead and align the extremity 
pulling general manual traction and don't release the manual traction until the bone is splinted. We're gonna splint in a functional position, immobilizing the injury, and again, the joint above and below the fracture. So again, if that's a forearm fracture, that's the forearm, elbow, and wrist. If it's a tib-fib fracture, that's the tib-fib, the knee, and the ankle. After we're done splinting, we have all of the, the straps down, tied down, however we're applying it, Last thing that we do is reassess pulse, motor, sensory function after splinting. And again, every time we reassess, we need to reassess that PMS in that extremity as well. So skill 30-3, splinting a long bone injury. Manually stabilize the injured extremity. We need to hold it in place. So if patient oftentimes is going to be holding it in place for us. But if we have enough hands, we'll have our partner hold manual stabilization, just hold it in place while we're getting our splint ready to go. Again, assess this to pulse, motor, and sensory function. Again, if the deformity is severe, pulses are absent, or the distal extremity is cyanotic, we can align with gentle manual traction. Now we're ready to actually splint. We measure, get the proper size splint that we need. Secure the splint to the injury. Again, uh, if we're dealing with the hand, that hand needs to be immobilized in the position of function. After the splint is applied, we're ensuring that it's following those rules. It's got the joints above and below as well. Last thing that we need to do is to check PMS once again. Joint injuries are going to be very similar. Should generally be splinted in the position found unless there's distal circulatory compromise. If that's the case, our protocols allow us to, we may be able to try to realign the injured site. If there is distal circulatory compromise, attempt to straighten get one attempt, stop if resistance is felt or it causes severe pain. Again, we're gonna assess PMS before we apply the splint. Then we apply the splint. Again, for joints, we have to mobilize the joint and the bones above and below. And then after we're done splinting, again, that last step is to reassess PMS one more time. <clears throat> so manually stabilize the joint, position found, assess PMS, measure the splint, apply the splint, and again, that last step is to reassess PMS. All right, moving on, talking about traction splints, and again, in EMS, the only time we use a traction splint is when we are dealing with a mid-shaft femur fracture. And it's again, it's only mid-shaft. If it's too close to the knee or if it's too close to the pelvis, we cannot use a traction splint. Femur fractures can be accompanied by bleeding, 
tremendous amounts of pain and muscle spasms as well. And the traction splint, we're pulling on that leg, but a lot of patients will tell you that it feels so much better after we apply that traction than it did just sitting there uh, in that position we find it. So the traction splint uses the device, the traction to align the femur and helps reduce these complications. And mid-shaft femur fractures, most manufacturer recommendations in our kind of standard is it has to be a closed fracture. We tend, we don't want to use femur fractures on open mid-shaft femur fractures. So again, if there's any doubt, we're going to apply that traction splint. So we're going to treat it as a fra femur fracture if the thigh is painful, swollen, or deformed. Mm -hmm. Now, some medical directors do have different of opinions. Spence's medical director, Dr. Addington, he is okay with the crews using a, a traction splint on an open femur fracture. But again, traditionally, it's only used on closed mid-shaft femur fractures. <clears throat> and there's two main type, different types of traction splints. You have a unipolar traction splint and a bipolar traction splint. This is what that bipolar traction splint looks like, bipolar two poles. This is also more commonly referred to as a hair traction splint. So two poles, straps, there has a winch that we hook up to the ankle hitch, tighten down that winch, and that's what's going to pull traction. The other type is a unipolar, only has one pole. And these are more commonly referred to as Sager splints. You're going to be pretty much bound to what your service carries. There is a lot of service that carries both of them, though, so it's going to be your preference. For class, we have both of them. You're going to you could practice with both of them. Whichever one you test on is going to be your preference. Me personally, at traction, the Sager splint, the unipolar, is a lot easier, faster, less room for us to screw up as well. So I always prefer the, the Sager if I if given the option. UMCMS, they carry Sagers. Again, there are instances when we do not want to use a traction splint. If the injury is within one to two inches of the knee, or that should be the pelvis, we're not going to use a traction splint. It has to be mid-shaft femur fracture. If there's other injuries to that extremity distal of the femur fracture, we're not going to use the traction splint as well. So if the knee itself is injured, if the tib-fib is fractured, if the pelvis itself has been fractured, <coughs> tib-fib fractures, ankle fractures, we're not going to want to use that traction splint. The reason being is it's not going to pull traction at the femur. It's going to pull traction at the injured site. So if the, the ankle is fractured and we put on a traction splint, it's going to be pulling that ankle apart, never reaching the femur. So basically for that leg anyway, it does have to be an isolated femur fracture, mid-shaft femur fracture in that leg. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay. Significant injury to the lower leg, foot, or ankle. Again, if we start pulling traction, it's, that's where we're going to pull the traction. That's to the lower leg, not the femur. 
unless we want to complete a partial amputation, make it a full amputation, don't apply a traction splint to a partial amputation. We're going to pull it off or there's a major avulsion. And again, consult medical direction for guidance on the use of traction splints for open femur fractures. Manufacturer recommendation in our standards, pretty much the standard is it is not used on open femur fractures, only closed. And the reason being, if it's open, the thought process is we could potentially cause more damage trying to pull those bones back into the body than that's already present. So again, the two tops, the hair and the sager. So if we're going to use a hair traction splint, we're going to expose the injured limb, check PMS. Now we're going to place the splint beside the uninjured leg and measure. The, the hair has to be measured properly. If we make it too short or too long, it's not going to work right. So we want to measure the hair splint on the uninjured leg because the injured leg is probably going to be shortened if those bone ends are no longer together, if they came on top or slid on top of each other. Go ahead and while it's there, we're going to prepare these straps right here according to that uninjured leg as well. And these straps have wording on it that tells you exactly where it should go as well. We're going to support the injured leg as your partner fastens the ankle hitch. So we're holding manual stabilization. The other rescuer is putting on that ankle hitch. And we do want that to extend about six inches beyond the, the length of the foot. The, on the uninjured side, we want the, the winch about six inches further out than the leg. Continue to support the limb as your partner applies gentle inline traction to the ankle hitch and foot. So this person is going to start pulling on that patient's leg. Now this person is going to start setting the device up. We're going to slide the splint into uh, under the injured limb. So it's going to go, we're going to place it in here, make sure it's going all the way up. The first strap that we apply to a hair traction splint is the ischial strap, which is going to be this very top strap right here. And all that issue strap do, is doing right now is anchoring the device to the patient. So when we pull traction, the device doesn't start slipping down. After we have that issue strap on, we're going to hook up the, the hook on the winch. We're going to hook that up to the ankle hitch. And then we're going to start tightening down the winch. It's going to click. And we're going to keep ratcheting that winch down until the traction that my partner is pulling matches what the device is now holding. After that, now we can secure the rest of the straps to the patient's leg. And again, that last step is going to be assessed distal neurovascular function PMS. If we're loading the patient onto a backboard or so forth, we do need to secure the patient and the splint to the longboard for transport. They're just using tape to prevent that traction splint from sliding around during movement. If we're not using backboards, we probably still need to use something, a backboard, a flexi, or something to get the patient on the stretcher 
and then we can slide the backboard out from under the patient once they're on the stretcher. Unipolar traction splints. These single pole that secured the groin area. The newer models do have a gauge to precisely set the traction. And Sager splints, the unipolar, they do allow for bilateral femur fractures. So if the patient has both their femurs fractured, one device of a Sager can pull traction on both. It's not the case for a hair. You would have to use two separate hair devices if both of their femurs were fractured. So the Sager splint, again, to me, is so much easier. Go ahead and remove all clothing from that injured site, assess PMS, place the splint along the medial aspect of the injured leg in the groin area, and secure that top ischial strap first. So whatever leg is injured, we're going to put the splint along that injured leg. So in this case, it's their right femur. The, that the Sager grows up into the groin area. For men, just be very carefully. They may want to adjust themselves before we ram that right up into their groin. Secure that ischial strap. Extend the distal end approximately four inches beyond the foot. Now, the good thing about the Sager, it's self-adjusting. So if we're too short, just pull it a little bit further. If we're too long, we can shorten it really easily. And we'll practice these in class as well. Apply the ankle hitch and attach the ankle hitch to the splint. And apply traction by extending the splint. So watch her hand placement. She has one hand on this upper portion, just kind of holding it steady. The other hand goes on the handle, and it's that hand that's pulling that traction. And it's going to start adjusting right here gets bigger, smaller, applying that traction right here, and that handle is going to start sliding back along the gauge as well. And if the gauge is present, we apply traction, 10% of total body weight, or 20% if it's bilateral femur fractures. Our protocols make it easier for us. For adults, if we're pulling one femur, it's 15 pounds of pressure. For bilateral femurs, we pull it to 30. Infants and pediatrics, so we still got to go back to the 10% of body weight up to 7 PSI or pounds per extremity. So I prefer Sager. Again, we're going to practice with both in class. You can make your own decision, and testing-wise, again, you can test on whichever one you want to test on. Sagers can easily be done with one person. Hairs definitely, in most cases, require two people. After we pull traction, secure the limb to the splint. They have straps that we just wrap around the legs and the splint. And then again, if we're still using backboards, put the patient on the backboard. The last step of splinting is checking PMS. So again, uh, traction splints are only used on mid-shaft femur fractures. Pelvic fractures associated with pain, significant bleeding. Remember, if pelvic fracture is another one of those injuries, like a femur fracture, that's a life-threatening injury that we do need to treat on scene before loading and moving the patient. So pelvis should be wrapped or bound to stabilize 
the fracture. There is commercial pelvic binders that are available. This is a SAM splint as well, SAM pelvic sling, I think is what they actually call it, that we wrap around the hips, we pull it tight, and there's actually teeth inside of this device that when enough tension is pulled on it, the teeth will pop out and secure it in place. If we don't have a commercial binder, just fold up a sheet, wrap it in that same area, and tie the sheet down as tight as we can get it. Fractures to the proximal femur and hip. So we're talking up high, hip fractures, or very proximal femur fractures. So again, it's not mid-shaft, so we're not going to use a traction splint on a hip fracture. It's best managed by a scoop or spine board, scoop stretcher, and just tying the legs together with padding in between. That's how we stabilize a hip fracture. Padding in between the legs, tie the legs together, put them on something semi-rigid like a flexi, and load them on the stretcher. Hip dislocations. With a hip dislocation, typically the foot and or leg may be shortened, and it also can be rotated as well. Limbs should be supported by pillows, roll blankets in the position of deformity, should be secured to a rigid device like a long spine board, scoop stretcher, flexis, good enough, or a vacuum mattress. We talked a little bit about compartment syndrome the other day when we were talking about uh, tourniquet use. So compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome is a condition in which increased tissue pressure in a confined space causes decreased blood flow, leading to hypoxia, possible muscle, nerve, vessel impairment, which can be permanent if those cells die. <clears throat> and the pressure that develops within an injured area <clears throat> exceeds the capillary pressure needed for perfusion to occur. So blood flow is cut off, tissue becomes hypoxic, which results in further damage and swelling, which leads to that increase in pressures. It can cause the death of the cells, loss of nerves, muscles, and vessels in that affected area. So if we have fractures especially, we do need to worry about compartment syndrome. Now, there's nothing we can do for it, but it is possible to, uh, to occur. Compartment syndrome can also happen in the abdomen and the buttocks. So compartment syndrome develops over time and is not normally present immediately after the injury. So if we're running on the, in, uh, the patient that just injured or fractured that extremity, we're not going to see compartment syndrome. Again, it's going to take days to hours to develop. But a patient that broke their arm, went to the hospital, got it in a cast, and then two days later is home, starts having signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome. Now we may come across it. Compartment syndrome can also occur from penetrating injury, blunt injury, or crush injuries as well. <clears throat> So signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome, severe pain or burning sensation. And oftentimes it's, it is described as being very intense, 
and it looks out of proportion with the apparent injury. They have a little bit of bruising, uh, but it doesn't look very bad, but they're complaining of it being extremely painful. Decreased strength in that extremity. They decrease or lose their grip strengths. Parkinson's syndrome can cause paralysis of the extremity. Pain with movement. When we palpate that extremity suffering compartment syndrome, it may feel hard and firm upon palpation. And compartment syndrome may occur even though distal pulses, motor, and sensory function can be normal. So kind of the telltale sign, the textbook indication of compartment syndrome is the firm extremity upon palpation and the pain being out of proportion with the apparent injury. So if we do suspect compartment syndrome, treatment-wise, all we can really do is immobilize and splint the extremity, elevating the extremity. We can apply cold packs and ice. Other than that, all we're going to be able to do is to transport the patient to the hospital. We may also come across non-traumatic fractures. These are known as pathologic fractures, like we mentioned earlier. And these fractures occur without significant force or no obvious trauma. So again, it's just a weakening of, of the bones over time. Patient has a fracture, but there was no real mechanism of injury. Patient starts complaining of a fracture, has a fracture from just walking, going downstairs. So again, there's no real mechanism of injury. Pathologic fractures, again, involve diseased bones, things like osteoporosis. Patients with past history of cancer, osteoporosis, or other bone conditions, they're going to be the more the ones that are have the higher likelihood of suffering from a pathologic fracture. Treatment's going to be the exact same. It's going to be harder for us to catch because, again, there is no mechanism of injury. Patients complaining of leg pain, unless it's obvious, we're probably not going to really suspect a fracture because, again, there was no mechanism of injury. But if we do suspect it, treatment is going to be the same just like we would any other fracture. So some key points to remember for orthopedic injuries. Again, do not get tunnel visioned on certain injuries. Most grotesque injuries are not normally fatal. That open uh, uh, ankle fracture that we saw earlier, saw some of y'all's faces on it. It was pretty, pretty rough looking, pretty grotesque looking. That's not going to kill a patient. So again, don't forget about our priorities for major trauma, ABCs, uh, complete head to toe. And again, if it's a major trauma, we're probably not even really going to do much treatment of that on scene. It's probably going to be done in route to the hospital. Femur and pelvic fractures are that exception. Those are considered immediate life-threatening injuries and must be immobilized prior to moving the patient. And again, we don't use long spine boards anymore, but that if we did, that can be a substitute as a temporary splint just to get the patient some protection, load them in the truck, begin transport. Then we can go back and do a more traditional splint en route.
So in summary, musculoskeletal injuries include fractures, sprains, strains, and dislocations. You do need to know the difference between those, the, the definitions of a sprain or strain, et cetera, fracture dislocation. Some fractures can result in life-threatening hemorrhage. Again, the bones themselves are going to bleed. Any arteries that are ruptured, soft tissues are going to bleed as well. Again, the, and that's an instance where that uh, radius ulna fracture, tip-fib fracture, may now become life-threatening if it's open, and now we have major external bleeding associated with it as well. Again, the bleeding would be considered an immediate life threat if it's major. EMTs manage. Uh, EMT management of musculoskeletal injuries can prevent further complications. Remember, there's a variety of types of splints available. You need to be familiar with whatever your service carries. You can also improvise out of other equipment that you have on your truck as well. And again, we always assess PMS before we apply the splint. And then the last part of that splinting skill is going to be to reassess PMS again. Okay, 